of Hebrews, chapter 4, beginning in verse 14, is where we hope to look for look at today. Last week we concluded our study of the second warning passage, which we began way back, remember, in chapter 3, verse 7, and then it finished up in verse 13 of chapter 4. That second warning was all about failing to enter God's rest. Failing to enter God's rest. And let us be mindful, as always, about who this audience is to which the author of Hebrews is writing. Remember, these are professing Christians. These are people who have professed Jesus Christ as their Lord and Savior, but yet they haven't really fully committed to God yet, right? And they're tempted to fall away. They're, they're suffering intense persecution. And because of that persecution, they're tempted to fall back, to apostate, to apostatize, or to fall back, to fall away, back to Judaism. And the author of Hebrews is saying, wait, wait, wait. Don't do that. Don't do that. Because what you have in Jesus Christ is far superior to what you had in Judaism. And that the old covenant served its purpose, but that covenant's purpose was to point you to Christ. And so he started off in chapter 1 saying, you know, here, here's Christ. Here's who you have. Remember, and he walked us through and said, oh, he's the, he's the exact representation of God. Right? He's, he's the very essence. He is God. And he walked us through all of that. And then in chapter 2, he warned us. He said, don't, don't let that slip away. Don't, don't, let, don't get so busy in your life that you're, you sail right on past and fail to harbor up here, to, to anchor at the harbor of salvation. Don't do that. And then in chapter 3, he starts kind of, remember chapter 1, back in chapter 1, remember he said he's better than the prophets, he's better than the angels, then he gives us the warning, don't drift away, then in chapter 3, right, he starts coming in here and saying, and he's better than Moses. <gasps> Moses? Oh my, not Moses. Okay, maybe the angels, maybe the prophets, but not Moses. And yet, the author of Hebrews systematically shows, right, that Moses was a faithful servant in the house of God, but Christ is the son over the house of God. It is his house, right? It's Christ's household, and we, as God's children, are part of the household of God, and the son oversees it all. So he then goes into that warning. He's saying, listen, hold fast. Remember chapter 3, verse 6, and then he repeated it again in chapter 14. Hold fast. Don't let this drift on by. Stand firm. And those that do remain are the ones who are truly the partakers of Christ. Not just those who say they are, but those who really are. The author of Hebrews does not want them to repeat the mistakes of the previous generation and miss God's rest. And so he's been using Psalm 95, the second half, verses 8 through 11, to show how they missed God's rest previously. So remember in chapter 4 then, in verse 1, he said, Therefore, let us fear if while a promise remains of entering his rest, any one of you may seem to have come short of it. What's the solution? He said, listen, verse 2, For indeed, we have had good news preached to us, just as they did also, but the word they heard did not profit them. Why not? Because it was not united by faith in their heart. Right? They heard it, but they didn't unite with faith. But they weren't the only ones who had missed God's rest. So in verses 5 through 7, 
The author of Hebrews then, remember, he shows us that God's rest was available in four different time periods, right? He goes all the way back to the book of Genesis, and then then again, the, the Israelite wanderings, and then in David's time, right? He just keeps walking them through these four different times. But again, verse 6, he reminds them, chapter 4, therefore, since it remains for some to enter it, even though it's been, it's been available this entire time, they have not entered it yet. Just like it's been available since creation. But this offer is only profitable to those who unite the good news. What was the good news? That they could enter into God's rest. They had to unite it with faith. And faith is the key to be able to enter God's rest. Faith in what? Faith in God and his promises. And throughout human history, only those who have heard the good news and then united it with faith were able to enter his rest. And those who did not are called disobedient. Why are they called disobedient? Not because they didn't do some task, but because they failed to believe. Remember chapter 3, verses 18 and 19, right? They shall not enter my rest. Why not? Because... They were disobedient. So we see they were not able to rent, enter the rest. Why? Because of unbelief. Unbelief. So which is why the author of Hebrews closes out this admonition with a plea in verse 7. Today, if you hear his voice, do what? Do not harden your hearts, but instead enter his rest. Enter his rest. Well, verses 8 through 10, then again, anticipating their response, because they would have been thinking, well, that's great. Okay, fine. We know Moses didn't enter the rest. We know Moses didn't enter the promised land. But let's not forget about Joshua. Joshua made it in. Did he not enjoy God's rest? Yes, they did receive some rest physically. That generation that finally made it in. However... It's still not the rest that God had available to them. It was a physical rest that was pointing to a spiritual rest. And to make that clear, in verse 9, he explains to them, so there remains a Sabbath rest. Again, that word is only used here in the entire New Testament. It's rarely used, actually, in that whole time period, even outside biblical literature. It's only used a couple times there. He's trying to express this point by using that, that this word here for Sabbath rest is a different than the rest, the Greek word that's used for rest that means to cease from activities. He can, that's the word he's been using all along, but here he uses a different word. And this is a rest that, this is a rest that isn't something that you do. This is something where you enter this rest by faith in something God has done. And that's the difference. It's a different rest. This is a rest, as Jesus talks about in Matthew 11, this is a rest for your very soul. It's not just a physical rest. It's a spiritual rest for your very soul. Come to me, all you who are weary and heavy laden, right? And I will give you rest. That's the kind of rest he's talking about here. A rest for your soul. Notice who it is that can enter this Sabbath rest today that's available. We see it at the end of verse 9. Who is it? It is the, the people of God. 
Those are the people who are able to enter this rest. Not people who claim they are the people of God because many people were traveling. You know, Many of those Israelites would have said, we're the people of God. We're the people of God. And yet they did not enter God's rest, did they? Why not? Because they did not unite the hearing of what God's promises had said to them about entering his rest. They did not unite that with their faith. Because of that, they did not enter. Yes, they were Israelites, but they were not the people of God, not that group anymore. So who are these people of God that actually enters rest? All those who unite their faith with God and his promises. In other words, it's God's own people who will share in God's own rest. Those who enjoy his rest are the believers. And in the Old Testament, who was that? It was those who approached God through faith in him and his promises. Today we have entrance into his rest, how? Through faith in God and his promises through Jesus Christ our Lord. We have a fuller revelation now, don't we? But yet it's still the same way. There's not two ways of salvation. We're still saved by grace through faith. We just now know that it's not just faith in God and his promises, but faith in God and his promises through Jesus Christ. That has become evident now. It was a mystery then, but it's evident now. So now to demonstrate that Sabbath rest, the author provides an example of what that looks like. Remember in verse 10, he says, For the one who has entered his rest has himself also rested from his works as God did from his. At the very core of this Sabbath rest is that we stop trusting in our own works to save us. We stop thinking that we can be a good enough person. We stop thinking that we can build enough orphanages or help enough little old ladies across the street or whatever good deeds we think that we have that make us fit for heaven. We cease trying to think that way and we surrender to the truth that it's all him. By faith, we trust in him and his promises through Jesus Christ our Lord. So, therefore, verse 11, after clearly demonstrating this Sabbath rest, God's rest is still available today for the people of God. It's still there. As well as clearly demonstrating the entrance into his rest cannot be achieved through their own works, he now tells them they must be diligent to enter that rest, which sounds like a work, but it isn't. Because that word diligent means to make haste, be eager be ready for it. Hold fast. Just, he says, he's admonishing them to not, less God, not let God's rest passively slip, them by, slip by. That word that says to be diligent there means to make haste. It's the opposite of what he said in verse 2, right? When he said, the warning he had in verse 2, it's the opposite meaning of drifting on by in life and missing the harbor of salvation. This means just the opposite. You're eagerly waiting to anchor your soul at the harbor of salvation. And just, he says, don't let it slip by like the Israelites did when they failed to trust God and believe in his promises. Don't be like them because they didn't enter the promised land. That generation died in the wilderness. They died in the desert because of their unbelief. But unlike them, we are to enter God's rest by faith in him, a faith which is a gift 
from God. Ephesians 2, 8 and 9, right? We can recite those. And when we unite that faith together with the hearing of the good news, then we enter his rest. How do we unite our faith together with the good news? How is that possible? Well, the true good news, the good news that is from God, is the revelation that comes to us through his word. And faith comes by hearing. Hearing by the word of Christ, or literally word of God, some of you have in your translation, means literally a message about God or a message about Christ. That's how faith. Faith comes by hearing and hearing a message about Christ. So the, the means by which we enter his rest is through faith, but even that faith is a gracious gift of God, according to Ephesians 2, 8, 9. And as we diligently apply and believe the word of God. But there's something very unique about the word of God. See, not only is it the means by which our faith is diligently applied to enter his rest, it also serves another purpose. But let me stop for a second and tell you that the word of God should be a great source of encouragement for believers. Right? So he's speaking to the believers and he's saying, Listen, how do you know you can enter his rest by faith? And he's saying, it's in the word of God. All through this, remember, he keeps saying, and God said, and he said, and God said, and the Holy Spirit said. And he keeps reinforcing the idea that God said it, and so it's true. And if God said that this rest is still available, it's still available. And so he has specifically chosen a passage that keeps reiterating the same point again and again. So for those who were there who were true believers, they would have taken great comfort in the truth of God's word. And that God said there's still a rest available. That's why he walked them back through scripture. Because they knew the truth of God's word. That's the positive side. The negative side is what the other side of what the Word of God does. And we find that in verses 12 and 13. You see, it's not only the means by which our faith is diligently applied to be able to enter His rest as we hear, right? Hear and read God's Word and then unite it with our faith. The other side of that is it is also the means by which the true intentions of our hearts are revealed. As we hear the Word of God, as we read the Word of God, it opens us up. It lays us bare. It exposes the thoughts and intentions of our hearts. So not only is it a wonderful positive for those who are true believers, but it's also nowhere to hide for those who are merely professing their faith. Look at that. Verses 12 and 13. I told you last week, are actually one sentence in the Greek. One sentence, and that becomes evident as you go through. Because notice the five things that are said about God's word here in verse 12, right? This is one of my favorite verses, right? The word of God is what? It's living. It's alive. And because it's a living word, it causes things to happen when united with faith through the ministry of the Holy Spirit. It causes things to happen. Like what? It convicts us. It exhorts us. It encourages us. It admonishes us. It builds us up. It edifies us. All of God's word. It's living and alive. 
It causes things to happen in our lives. Secondly, it's active, which some of you may have rendered powerful. That means it's it's transforming. It reveals to us as we truly are with no false pretenses. We can fool our family and our friends about who they think we are as we put on our many masks in life. But you don't read the word of God and fool anybody but yourself. It opens up our minds and enlightens us to the truth. It actively, powerfully transforms us. Not only is it alive, not only is it active. Third, it's sharper than any two-edged sword, right? That would have been a visual demonstration to them. I told you last week, the most lethal weapon that a Roman soldier had was a sword that was razor sharp on both sides of the blade. And it was meant to penetrate quickly into the enemy. The author of Hebrews here uses that visual because they all would have known about it. So that's how the word of God is. When you hear it, when it's cut straight, when you read it, it penetrates you to your very soul. Like a two-edged sword. It separates truth from lies. It separates right from wrong. It separates godliness from ungodliness. Whatever you think you have, whatever standard you think you have, is cut to the core when you measure it against the Word of God. It's alive, it's active, it's sharper than any two-edged sword. Fourth, it's piercing. If you ever read the Word of God, it just felt like, oh my goodness. Oh, it just took my breath away. That's me. I'm that person. I'm the one acting that way. That's me. It pierces us to our very soul. It pierces that stony casing we have around our hearts. It penetrates even that. It divides that which is indivisible. It pierces through to judge even the thoughts and the intentions of our hearts and our minds. What we think is a secret is actually an open book. Through God's Word. It's laid out for inspection by the piercing of his word. Unless you think for one moment that that doesn't include you, that you're exempt from that, our next verse leaves no question at all as to the extent and power of his word. Look at verse 13. And here's the fifth thing that God's word is. It's discerning. There's no one, look at that, no one that can hide from God. No one. No creature hidden from his sight. No, not one. There's not one thought that can be hidden from his piercing view before whom we will all have to give an account. And in case we didn't get that, then he wants to give us another word picture here. He says that all things are open and laid bare to the eyes of him with whom we have to do. The words here are quite vivid. That word open means to be naked, exposed, completely vulnerable. And that word lay bare, that second word, describes the grip that a wrestler would have on your neck as they tilt your head back. Or what they would do to an animal before they would sacrifice it. They would tilt that neck back. The neck was totally exposed. That's the idea. That's the word picture 
the author of Hebrews has created. And it reminds us that we cannot hide from God because he sees all of our guilt. He sees all of our hypocrisy. He sees all of those challenges to our faith. He sees it all. Listen, all those professing believers in that little church in Hebrews, he wants them to stop and realize everything that he just told them in this warning passage. He said, I want you to think about this for a second. Because many of you are thinking you're heading back. Don't think that you're going to be able to talk your way out of that if you go back. Don't think that you can pretend that you're a believer and fall back to Judaism. Because you might be able to fool your friends. You might be able to fool those in the synagogue. But you will not fool God. So he's warning them. Don't do it. They shouldn't think for a moment that they could hide from God all of their innermost thoughts, not any of their discouragements or unbelief. They should not think for a moment that they could present themselves to God in any other way than what they truly are. They've heard God's word through the prophets. They've heard God's word through Moses. They've heard God's word through the law. And now they've heard God's word through his son. And they are without excuse. The author is warning them to not think that the disobedience to his promises given by his son will miss the gaze of God. It's frightening, isn't it? Frightening. He's urging them, pleading with them to not think they will not receive the same judgment of those who wandered in the wilderness, whose evil, unbelieving hearts left them dead in the wilderness apart from his rest. He's saying, listen, don't think that you're going to enter into God's rest, the kind of rest he's been describing, because you call yourself the people of God, but you haven't united the good news with your faith. Because if that's the case, you are not the people of God. You're just calling yourself the people of God. And since all men are responsible to God, and he is the one who cannot be deceived by human actions or words or deeds, he sees through all attempts at hypocritical faith. And so it's fitting that that second warning should end like that, because that sets the stage for this next section, which begins in verse 14. Look at that together. Therefore, therefore, because of everything I just spent covering with you, therefore... Because God sees it all, because there's no hiding, no false pretenses, no faking it. Therefore, since we have a great high priest who has passed through the heavens, Jesus, the Son of God, let us hold fast our confession. You see, now after just leaving them with this terrifying, sobering thought that God knows your every thought every intention, and all of us are laid bare before him, we get these encouraging words. Hold fast. Because Jesus, the Son of God, is your great high priest. Martin Luther, and I said this, I'm paraphrasing here. After terrifying us, the author now confronts us, or comforts us, I should say. 
After terrifying us, he now comforts us. After pouring wine or alcohol on our open wound, he now puts oil in to heal it. What's the point here? Why does he go from this scary warning to now reminding them that Jesus is their great high priest? He's letting us know that even though we are laid bare by the word of God before him, even though we are totally vulnerable and transparent to God, we have someone who can intercede for us on our behalf. As scary as it is that God knows every thought and intention of your heart, and that his word pierces and penetrates you to your very soul, even still, for those who are true believers, you have somebody interceding for you who's not just a high priest, but he's a great high priest. So immediately to those professing Christians and Hebrews who were tempted to fall back to Judaism, this would have brought back the thought of what the priests did under the law. That's what they would have envisioned. Because the priests under the law really had two functions. You know what they were? He was to mediate. He was to mediate between God and man for his sin through the sacrificial system. Okay? So he was the one, the priest was the one who would offer the sacrifices. That was one. And secondly, he was to intercede for man before God. He was to be the one who would cry out to God and intercede for man to God. The author wants to show that instead of fear, they should take great comfort that the one that intercedes for them is a high priest that's far superior to any other high priest that they know. Now, in what ways was their high priest superior to Aaron? That's who they would have been thinking of. Verse 14a tells us here, We have a great high priest who has passed through the heavens. Why is that important? What does that mean? What's well, hard for us today to understand the importance of the high priest and their functions under the law, but keep your place in Hebrews here and turn back to the book of Leviticus. Leviticus. Now, Leviticus, probably those very crisp pages in your Bible there. Not a lot of stains on those. I'm just kidding. Okay. Leviticus chapter 8. One of the easiest books to read in the entire Bible. Once again, I'm kidding. Uh, very difficult. Leviticus makes a lot of sense if you read it alongside Hebrews. But if you're reading it in and of itself, it becomes very difficult. So we're going to try and help you out a little bit as we walk back and forth, in, especially in the next couple chapters here, and kind of show you how that all fits together. So first, it says their high priest passed through the heavens. And it's hard for us again to understand, but Leviticus 8, chapter, Leviticus chapter 8, verse 1, all the way through chapter 10, verse 20, gives us the foundations for the Levitical priests. Now, in Leviticus chapter 1 through 7, is all about the rules and the restrictions and the commands for offering sacrifices. It's very exciting reading. It's not. It's very difficult to understand, right? Okay. Then in chapter 8, we have the installation of the priest, right? You can see it there, right? Uh, verse 8, he then placed the breast, the breast piece on him, and the breast piece he put the urim and the thummim 
He also placed the turban on his head. On the turban at his front, he placed the gold plate, the holy crown, just as, just as the Lord had commanded him, right? They're consecrated, right? Seven times, he and his sons, right? They're set apart for service to God. Then in chapter 9, describes for us the first worship service in the temple with the sacrifice. They're very strict commands that needed to be adhered to flawlessly. Then look at chapter 10, verse 1. Now here's we see in Leviticus chapter 10, verse 1. What happens if one were to approach God in any other way than what he has commanded? Look at Leviticus 10, verse 1. Now Nadab and Abihu, the sons of Aaron took their respective fire pans and after putting fire in them, placed incense on it and offered strange fire before the Lord, which he had not commanded them. And the fire came out from the presence of the Lord and consumed them, and they died before the Lord. And then Moses said to Aaron, It is what the Lord spoke, saying, By those who come near me, I will be treated as holy. And before all the people, I will be honored. So Aaron, therefore, kept silent. One of the wisest words ever read in the Bible there. Aaron kept silent. No priest could ever approach God in the way other than what God had commanded. Because if they did, they would die. To do so would have brought instant death, as we've already seen. God is holy, and he sees every intention of their heart. His word is just an extension of who God is. And he reads us like an open book. And thus no priest, nor anyone else for that matter, could just stroll into the presence of God on their own terms. They must do it the way God had commanded that they do it. Why? Because God is holy. God is holy. We don't talk a lot about the holiness of God. We probably don't talk enough about the holiness of God. But it's all through Scripture. All through Scripture. Nor could they come into his presence with sin that was not atoned for. Well, if no one can enter into God's presence to mediate for man before God, who could ever intercede for them on their behalf? Who could do it? The answer, only the high priest could do that. Only the high priest could enter into the presence of God, and even then, only in a very specified way and on a very specific day. And we, that day was called, what? The Day of Atonement, and we see that in Leviticus chapter 16. Now, I won't walk you through that whole chapter, but if you're taking notes, I would advise you to kind of read through Leviticus 16 because that's going to be very helpful as we start unpacking the difference between Christ as our high priest and Aaron as our high priest, or the earthly priest versus Christ, our great high priest. And so if you're familiar with Leviticus chapter 16, that'll be very helpful for you. Once a year, to give you a brief overview here on the Day of Atonement, the high priest would go into the Holy of Holies to atone for all the sins of Israel. 
And if he did not follow God's commands explicitly, he would die instantly. He would sprinkle blood on the mercy seat in the very presence of God. But even before doing that, he had to offer a sacrifice for his own sins. And then when he entered the Holy of Holies, he only stayed long enough to sprinkle the atoning blood. And then he got out of there. In fact, bells were sewn to the hem of his robe so the people outside could hear him moving and thus know that God had not struck him dead. And when he came out alive, the people heaved a great sigh of relief because it meant that God had accepted their sacrifice for their sins for yet another year. And he would do that every year on that day, year after year after year after year. Now, to get to the Holy of Holies, to perform this sacred task once a year, the high priest would have to go through three partitions. The first one, with the blood in his hand, he would go through the door into the outer court. Then he would pass through the doorway into the holy place. And then finally, he would carry the blood to sprinkle on the mercy seat and pass through the veil into the Holy of Holies. Three different partitions. Three different portals, if you will, that the high priest would have to walk through. And these three different partitions, or three different portals, were necessary to pass through before coming into the presence of the triune God. And not only that, he had to do it year after year. But Jesus is not another high priest, like the earthly priesthood of Aaron. He is our great high priest. Incidentally, only Jesus is called the great high priest. Rather than entering the Holy of Holies in the temple like an earthly priest, Jesus passed through the heavens in his ascension into the very presence of God. And Jesus passed through the heavens going through the first heaven, which is the atmosphere, the second heaven, which is outer space, and the third heaven, which is the Holy of Holy of all places into the very presence of God. You can read about those three heavens from Paul in 2 Corinthians chapter 12. And it was there that the Father said to him, Sit at my right hand till I make your enemies a footstool for your feet. Remember that? That was quoted back earlier in Hebrews. No earthly priest would ever dare to even think about sitting in the Holy of Holies. There were no seats in the Holy of Holies. They always stood. But Jesus sits at the right hand of God's throne because once and for all, he made atonement for our sins. One-time sacrifice with continuing effects forever. And he remains there today at God's right hand, making intercession for us. So Jesus, our great high priest, was unlike any mere mortal high priest. Because Jesus' priesthood was also forever, according to the order of Melchizedek, which you're going to hear a lot about in the following chapters. Now I want you to take note of one more thing before we leave this verse. Notice the difference in the names. Jesus is called our great high priest. Like I said, only he is called that in Scripture. There are high priests, there are priests, but there's only one great high priest. And all the reasons why he's the only one called the great high priest, well, we've already talked about some of those, and there's a lot more. He passed through the heavens. He sits at the right hand of the Father. 
but even more will come in chapter 5. But I want you to notice that even his name speaks to the superiority of him as a high priest. See, the name, Jesus, is his earthly name, right? Yeshua, right? the one who saves, the one who came to save, or God saves. Flip back in Hebrews chapter 2 for a second, would you? Because here, remember how it seemed like it was kind of out of place? He just kind of threw out in there that he was our, our high priest. And we're like, well, why does he say that here now? And well, now we see this connecting. As a matter of fact, when he said that in chapter 2, verse 17, then he goes in there right after and goes into the warning passage. He's now coming back to this theme of Christ as the great high priest. Look at chapter 2, verse 17. Remember he said that? He said, Therefore he had to be made like his brethren in all things, so that he might become a merciful and faithful high priest in things pertaining to God, to make propitiation for the sins of the people. Remember, propitiation means the turning away of God's wrath. The turning away of God's wrath. But here Jesus, that word, that name Jesus, speaks to his humanity. Remember what we just read? Chapter 2, verse 17. He had to be made like his brother in all things. He was 100% man. 100% man. And yet, look at the other half of his title, Son of God. That expresses his deity. Fully man, fully God. 100% man, 100% God. Not 200%. 100%, 100 and yet one. Had he not been God, he never could have lived a sinless life, become the perfect sacrifice to turn away God's wrath. Had he not been a man, he never could have died. He never could have been a representative. He never could have died on the cross because God is eternal. He had to be fully God. He could be sinless. He had to be fully man. So he could die on our behalf. And this is why it's so important. Why he's the only one called the great high priest. Because he's the only one who's fully man and fully God. He's the only one that could have the perfect sacrifice to turn away the wrath of God. And so that all those who would hear the good news and united with faith could enter into God's rest forever. And this high priest is interceding. He sits at the right hand of the Father like no earthly priest could do. And he made atonement for your sin forever. Not just once a year. That had to be repeated once and for all. Well, the author of Hebrews, this is why he tells them, hold fast. Hold fast. Because you've got a great high priest that's unlike any other high priest who's now making intercession for you, who sits at the right hand of God the Father. And so he knows that they're struggling with their profession of faith. They're tempted to fall back. And he knows if they don't realize how superior Christ is as the great high priest, that he's more superior than any mere earthly priest could ever be, that they would be tempted to fall away. And he says, don't do that. 
Christ is better than the prophets. He's better than the angels. He's better than Moses. He's better than Joshua. And he's better as a high priest even than Aaron. Don't do it. And because of their unbelief, he's worried that they're not going to enter God's rest. That God had given them the good news and invited into his rest, his eternal rest. But they need to unite it with faith. They need to believe God and his promises. And as comforting as it is of God's word, and we know it's true because God has said it, we also know that God's word is living and active and would discern their hearts and there'd be no faking it, no pretending, no hypocrisy. And that none of them would escape the judgment of the one that sees all things if their hearts weren't true, if they haven't truly united the good news with faith. Their only hope, their only hope is to have an intercessor on their behalf. A priest, but a priest. Not just a priest, but a high priest. And not just a high priest, but the one and only great high priest. The one who passed through the heavens instead of through the doors and veils made by human hands. Not an earthly priest who would sprinkle blood on the mercy seat once a year to atone for sins. Not an earthly priest who had to atone for their own sins before they could ever represent God's people. Not an earthly priest who had to repeat this sacrifice year after year after year. No, their priest is the great high priest, the God-man, Jesus Christ, whose own blood is sprinkled on the mercy seat through his atoning work on the cross. And he did not need to atone for his sin because he had no sin to atone for. And yet he who had no sin became sin for us so that we might become the righteousness of God. Jesus, the Son of God, our great high priest, is the only high priest to sit down at the right hand of the Father in the Holy of Holies. There is none other. That was their great, their great high priest. That is the one who's interceding for them. And he's far superior to what they actually had in any earthly high priest. There's simply no contest between the Levitical, the earthly priest, and Christ as the great high priest. And so he tells them then at the end of verse 14, let us hold fast our confession. Think about these things. And that confession was tied exactly to chapter 3, verse 1. Jesus, our apostle, the sent one of God, remember? And high priest. The author of Hebrews is telling them to hold on to their confession that Jesus, the apostle, the sent one of God, who did everything to secure their salvation, he tells them, profess that he is your great high priest. Hold fast to that. It may be an anchor to their very souls as they battle thoughts of unbelief in the midst of their trials. Now, while God may give special grace at such a time when we're in the midst of our trials, we would do not do well in persecution if we grumble and walk away from God every time we face something that we struggle with. And that's his point here. Matter of fact, the next couple of verses, he's going to show just how special it is to have Christ as your great high priest. And for all who have trusted Jesus Christ as your personal Savior, you too have a great high priest who sits at the right hand of God the Father and who intercedes for you. And when you go through a trial, 
instead of wavering in your unbelief, remember who it is that's the anchor of your soul. Paul says we're not only to persevere in trials, but we're to do so with great joy. In Romans 5, verse 3. So hold fast your confessioning of faith in Christ when he takes you through different difficult trials. Don't fall away. Hold fast. Stand firm in your confession. Because the one who's interceding for you is none other than your great high priest who sits at the right hand of the majesty on high. And that, I pray, would bring you great joy and comfort. So let me ask you this. What about you? What do you cling to in the midst of your trials? What is it that's the anchor for you? Do you fall away? Do you think it would relieve the pressure if you just kind of step back away from your faith a little bit, that maybe this might be better for you if you could just step away? What is it that you cling to in the midst of your trials? What is it that's your safety net? Is it something man-made? Is it your own intellect, your own wisdom, your own knowledge? Are you going to figure this all out by yourself? Do you realize even when you're in your toughest circumstances facing your most severe trials that you have a great high priest who's interceding for you? Who's hearing your prayers and formulating them to the Father in a way that's pleasing to Him? Do we truly apply that truth in our lives when trials cause us to waver and stumble in our faith? Or do we walk away from our faith and distance ourselves? Do we cling to our faith or fall away from it? I trust that you cling to your faith in the midst of your trials. I trust that you realize that you have not just a priest, not just a high priest, but you have the great high priest, Jesus Christ, the Son of God, who will hear your prayers, who hears your prayers who intercedes on your behalf, who sits at the right hand of God the Father. And I pray that you know, as our great high priest, his intercession for us is far different than when someone else intercedes for us. We'll talk a little bit more about that next week. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, I pray, Lord, that you would help us as we start to look at Christ as our great high priest and why that's so significant and what that means as we go to live out our daily lives. Father, there are many in our midst here even today who have very difficult trials in their life, very serious trials. Some of them are physical. Some of those are based in relationships. Some of those are spiritual trials, Lord. But you know each, each and every one, Lord. Nothing is, hidden from, nothing is hidden from your view. But, Father, your word instructs us to take comfort, to know that there's one who intercedes on our behalf. And next week, Lord, we'll find out exactly from your word how special that is to have Jesus, the Son of God, interceding for us. 
and why that should cause us to take great comfort instead of having great fear, to run to you instead of running away from you, to cling to you instead of falling away. Father, I pray that as we study this next chapter, Lord, that you would comfort us with that truth. And may we have a peace that passes all understanding, Lord, from your word, from the knowledge of you. In Christ's name we pray. Amen.